Now every year I set myself the same challenge, and it's this. Richard, get outside and go and climb some Scottish Munros. Well, last week I heard about one chap who would put me to utter shame. His name is Takoa Ariyama. Now let me tell you about Takoa Ariyama. Takoa is from Japan. And last week, along with four of his friends, he conquered the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, at 29,000 feet. But there's something you must know about Takoa Ariyama. Takoa is not a young thing, like me. Like Norrie Wilson. He, he, he is, he's almost 71 years old. Where's not? Grace. Grace. And I thought you were supposed to get slower as you got older. When news reached his wife, she said understandably, I was just happy to hear he was safe. Now, Takoa is a management consultant. But what makes him distinctive is being the oldest person ever to climb Everest. And it puts my Ben Lomond triumph in renewed perspective. Now, this morning... I want us to focus on someone who I think must have been a remarkable individual. Like Takoa, he was distinctive in his time. And how he lived has huge relevance for us this morning. Now we find this story in the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis chapter 5. So please turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 5 and verses 3 to 27. And it's page number 7 in the few Bibles. And it's here in this chapter that we come to the first graveyard in human history. I don't know if you ever read the inscriptions on headstones. Well, this morning, I invite you to come and walk with me as we read the inscriptions over their lives and see if you can spot who is distinctive, who has the unusual epitaph. So, Genesis chapter 5, and stay with me, verses 3 to 27. And it says this, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years. And then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahaliel. And after he became the father of Mahaliel, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years and then he died. When Mahaliel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahaliel lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, 
Mahalia lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years and then he died. Did you spot it? And then he died, then he died, then he died. And suddenly, there it is among all the rest, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. Now the writer to the book of Hebrews spotted it. And he includes the man in question in his heroes of faith. And so if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 now, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, and it's page number 1209 of the Pew Bibles, Hebrews chapter 11, let's look at what he says. In verse 5, he writes this, in verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And so verse 5 describes this man called Enoch. And the following verse, you'll notice verse 6, draws a general principle from his example. So look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, a few years ago, I went on the West Highland Way, went for a walk in the West Highland Way. And if you've ever done it, you know that it takes you through some spectacular scenery. And you finish up in Fort William. And if you really wanted to, you could climb Ben Nevis at the end. I didn't really want to. But you know what? It was great being able to walk with a companion. I was not alone. For those five days, we'd get soaked in the rain together. We'd tell jokes together. And we'd even sing together. Don't you wish you were there with us? No? Well, the point is this. Very little is known about this man called Enoch. Oh, we know it's found in brief accounts in Genesis, Hebrews, and the book of Jude. But look at what we do know. His genius is this. He walked with God. And it pleased God. Archie Kendall writes this about the man who walked with God. He says, Enoch is one of the least spectacular and yet one of the most godly men in the Old Testament. And so this morning, we're going to explore this question. What does it mean to walk with God? Yes, what does it mean to walk with God? And how will it show in my life? 
Well, there are three marks about someone who walks with God. If you, firstly, if you walk with God, you will crave God's presence. You'll crave God's presence. And notice how it begins. It starts with an invitation. And we all love getting invitations, don't we? Last Friday, or last Wednesday it was actually, I received an email from a friend in America. And he invited us to stay in his home. Let me share this with you, just to get you jealous. They live in beautiful New England. Their home is on an idyllic island. And downtown Boston is only an hour by train. Guess how I replied. But let me tell you about the greatest invitation of all. It's the invitation to find God your maker through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice we find that in verse 6. Now to understand this, we must go back to Genesis chapter 3. And let me try and summarize it briefly for you. Genesis chapter 3, you'll remember. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were placed by God in the garden with everything they would ever need. They were made to know God and love Him and to find complete fulfillment in that relationship. But sadly, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they didn't trust Him. And so for the first time, they hid from God as He came to walk with them. The relationship was now broken and death entered the world as an intruder. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. But wonderfully, here's why the gospel means good news. It's as though God has sent you an email, or he's written you a letter, and he invites you, and he invites you to come and be reconciled with him. Billy Graham you know, as a world-famous evangelist. And he has crusades all over the world. And they always sing a song at the end. Remember how it goes? Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Amazingly this morning, and it is amazing, we, we can forget the amazement of it, you and I can be reconciled with our Maker, through Jesus, as the prophet Jeremiah could write, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I wonder if that is you this morning. You are seeking God. Well, here's the good news. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's what Enoch did. But notice carefully, he did more than that. He also involved God in every part of his life. Now, there are some people who you'll just love to spend time with. You want them to be involved in your life. For example, when I was at St. Andrews, there's a chap called James Dixon Douglas, who loved to spend time with. J.D. Squared, we called him. He was in his late 80s, and he was a character. And one day, he invited Alison and myself around to his place for some lunch. And so I checked, just to make sure that he hadn't forgotten and he informed me by email that no, he hadn't forgotten. Why? Because he put in his diary, Alison plus one. It's wonderful being kept humble. We fell out after that. But it was great being with him and hearing his stories about teaching in Singapore, working with Billy Graham, the Lausanne Congress of 74, and how he didn't like pumpkin pie. Now, for someone who walks with God, they will have that same kind of intimate relationship with, 
with God. And here's how it will show in your life. You want to confide in him. And you want to spend time with him. And you want to tell him what's on your mind. What your plans are for the future. And what you're rejoicing in just now. But also what you're struggling with. Why? Because he's your greatest friend. You see, that's what Enoch did. Enoch did that. And he lived a fairly normal life. But there was something which just shone through. His love for God and his hunger for God. Andrew Murray, in his commentary on Hebrews, writes this. Desire is the root of faith. Without a hunger for God, his existence is a matter of indifference. To know God, to see in God everything and everywhere in our daily life, to be conscious of his presence so that we always walk with him, that is a true nobility of man. This is the life that faith lives. I wonder if that is your desire this morning. Well, here's how you can apply this. Here's one example. Next weekend in Charlotte Chapel, as you know, we have a course with Ian Leach called the New Life Seminar. And it starts on Friday at 7pm. And if you want to grow in your walk with God, then this course is for you. And can I emphasise that it's open to everyone. And it covers topics such as how to interpret the Bible, what the Bible teaches about God, and walk in the Spirit. And it should be excellent. And if you haven't yet signed up for it, you can sign up today in the lounge after the service. So firstly, if you walk with God, you'll crave God's presence. Now secondly, you'll believe God's promise. You'll believe God's promise. I like the story about George Whitfield, the famous 18th century preacher. One day he was preaching to some coal miners. And he asked one man, what do you believe? Well, I believe the same as the church. And what does the church believe, he asked. Well, they believe the same as me. <laughs> it gets worse. See, he was getting nowhere. Whitfield said, And what is it that you both believe? Well, I suppose the same thing. And the point is, what we believe is important. C.S. Lewis, in his typical clarity, put it very well when he said, You never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong as long as you are merely using it to to cord a box. But he says, but suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice, wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? And in verse 6, we find two great realities about the living God. Firstly, in walking with God, it means believing the existence of God. Okay? And secondly, it means believing the goodness of God. So firstly, believing the existence of God. And there are two parts to this. Number one, the actuality of God. The actuality of God. Now let me tell you what happened last week. On Wednesday evening, the pastoral team and the office staff went to the manse for a bit of a party. I don't know if you're aware of this, but inside the manse, there is a massive fish tank. It's absolutely gigantic. And there are fish of all different Colours, shapes and sizes. There are blue ones, yellow ones, red ones, black ones, pretty ones and downright ugly ones. Amazing variety. And you know, someone looked 
at these multicolored fish. And he said, how could you not believe in a creator God? And I remember that day when I climbed Ben Lomond. I got to the top and I looked around at God's creation. Do you know what I thought? How could you not believe in a creator God? Here's how David the psalmist puts it in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's number one. The actuality of God. And number two is the ability of God. Now, if I asked you to raise your hand, if you believe in the actuality of God, nearly every hand would be raised this morning. Yes? But think about this. Do you also believe, really believe, in the ability of God? Not just the actuality of God, but the ability of God. For that situation you are facing just now, in your family, in your work, in your relationships, in your health, do you believe that God is able to meet you in your need? In other words, do you believe that God is in control? Now, that is easy to believe when things are going well, correct? But what happens when you're going through a crisis? Well, if that's you, let me remind you of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3 says this, Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And here's what that means. It means that nothing will happen in your life that God will not allow to happen. It takes us to our second point here. Our second point is this. Walking with God also means believing the goodness of God. Believing the goodness of God. Now you may know the poignant story of Corrie ten Boom. During the Second World War, Corrie ten Boom was sent to the infamous Ravensbrück concentration camp. And life there was appalling. I want you to think about this. Imagine that you were Corrie, okay? Put yourself in Corrie's place. You're a Christian. You love God. But now look where you are. You're in a stinking concentration camp. The question is this. Would you still believe in the goodness of God? Would you still believe in the goodness of God? Well, here's what Corrie writes. Listen to this. She says, Often I have heard people say, How good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for the church picnic. And look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good, she says, when he sends good weather. But God was also good when he allowed my sister, Betsy, to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. She writes, I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark and there was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy. He has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And here is how Corey concludes. She says, There is an ocean of God's love available 
There is plenty for everyone. May God grant you never to doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstances. And we see that goodness supremely in a place called Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the point is this. Whenever life just doesn't seem to make any sense, whenever things just don't seem to add up, life's not fair, does God really care about me? Turn your eyes, once again, to Calvary. And on that cross, you will see displayed the abundant goodness of God. And someone who looked at the cross was Alan Gardner. Alan Gardner was a missionary. And he had experienced many hardships throughout his service to Christ. In 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving in South America. When his body was found, his diary lay nearby. And it bore the record of hunger, thirst and loneliness. Now the last entry in his little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand as he tried to write legibly. And it read very simply. Well, this was great. I am overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Isn't that great? I wonder if you could say that this morning. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. So if you walk with God, you'll crave God's presence and you'll believe God's promise. And now finally, you'll receive God's prize. You'll receive God's prize. And I don't know if we have any football fans here in Charlotte Chapel. I expect we do. Or maybe you're married to one. And you probably know what I'm going to say next. But just in case you've forgotten, as if we could, let me remind you that in a few days' time, the World Cup is coming to Germany. There's a few smiles there. And all you'll hear about is who will win that coveted FIFA trophy. Now, imagine this. Imagine that England somehow (laughs) managed to win the World Cup. And you'll have to imagine exceptionally hard. But let me ask you this. I'm half English, actually. How could they achieve that? Well, they'd have to train night and day. They'd have to learn from their mistakes and basically just do their very, very, very best. And they would be given that prize, the FIFA trophy, which they would then have to hand back at the end. But let your mind dwell on this. For someone who walks with God, there is a far, far, far greater prize in store. And it's something you cannot earn. Okay? You simply receive it by faith. I love what D.L. Moody once said about the thief at the cross. I thought it was great. He says, D.L. Moody, the thief had nails through both hands so that he could not work. And a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation. But listen, and yet Christ offered him the gift of God and he took it. Christ threw him a passport and took him into paradise. That was great. And if you look at verse 5, you'll notice that's where Enoch 
is taken. Look, read with me. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And there are two things I want us to notice here as we close. Two wonderful truths. Firstly, it is a prize which is certain. A prize which is certain. Now, whether England will actually win the World Cup is anybody's guess. So I'm sure you'll agree. But here is a prize which is certain. If you cast your eye at verse 5 again, you'll notice that three times, three times we're told that Enoch was taken away by God. And the word literally means to change from one place to another. Now, Enoch was one of only two people in the Bible who, was take, who did not experience physical death. Yes, the other being the prophet Elijah. He was taken straight into God's presence. Now, here's the point. You may not leave this earth the same way as Enoch. But if you're a Christian, you're heading in the same direction. Listen to these words from Jesus, found in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Wonderful. And so finally, it is a prize which is eternal. A prize which is eternal. The story is told of a child who came home from Sunday school one day. And her mother asked, what was the Bible story about today? About a man called Enoch came the reply. And what did he do? Asked the mother. He was a great friend of God, said the child. He and God used to go for long walks together. And talk and enjoy each other's company. One day, they went for such a long walk that God said to Enoch, We are nearer my place than yours. Isn't that great? Why don't you come and stay with me? And so he did. And so can we. Start walking with God now. Keep on walking with him. And one day, you'll walk into his eternal presence. A few days before his death, Dr. F.B. Meyer, a great Christian, wrote a very dear friend these words. He wrote, I have just heard, to my great surprise, that I have but a few days to live. It may be that before this reaches you, I shall have entered the palace. Don't trouble to write. We shall meet in the morning. I wonder if you could say that with absolute assurance. John Newton could say that. And he could pen these immortal words from the very depths of his soul. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've just begun. And so as we close, let me ask you a final question, a direct question, and it's this. 
Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? Do you crave God's presence? Do you believe God's promise? And are you confident of receiving God's prize? May you and I this morning echo the prayer of William Cowper. We sang it earlier when he writes, Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. Let us pray.